If you have your Bibles, I would like to ask you to open them to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12 is where we will be, and there is a Bible app event for this. If you didn't think to bring your own Bible, you would find us on page 1123. One, one, two, three, in a, in a Bible in a chair there. And I'm actually going to begin with that passage of Scripture. I'm going to read it in just a couple of moments. And, and before I do, though, I, I just want to give you a warning, okay? Um, there's this thing called familiarity that causes you to devalue things. You know what I mean about that? It's like I can remember when I had a pretty nice car and it had to go into the garage for a little while and I borrowed somebody's junker car and when I got my nice car back, I was like, whoa, I've forgotten how nice this is, you know? My Ford Escort is much better than that Pinto that I was borrowing, right? Yeah, right? It happens in relationships too, you know? You, you, you fall in love when you're young with a girl or a guy if you're a girl and, and it's like, wow, this is just so wonderful, but familiarity causes you to kind of like, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, my, my wife's cool, you know, right? Even with cooking, you know, my wife can make a pretty mean pecan pie. I'm going to try to talk her into making one for me today. <laughs> I guarantee you she will not make one for me today. Unfortunately, she heard about all the pie I ate. But you understand that if, if um, you're familiar, if your wife is always or your husband's always cooking really great food, you begin to kind of take it for granted and not value it the way you should. It is that way with the word of God. And that's tragic. That's tragic. Bible verses that we review again and again and again can become so familiar to us that we forget to value them. And so I'm going to read this passage to you, Romans 12, 1 and 2, and you're going to hear it, and some of you probably have it memorized, and you'll say, I memorized that from a different version, and you'll just go, oh, yeah, whatever, and you can miss the impact of it. I wish you'd never heard these words before so that you'd hear them for the first time now. So let's take a look at them. It's Romans chapter 12, and it's just two verses, verses 1 and 2. Listen, follow along as I read it. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, that's right in the middle of the book of Romans, two-thirds of the way through in chapter 12 there. The previous 11 chapters, he has said, God sent Jesus to die for your sins, and you can be freely forgiven by turning from your sin, asking him for a new heart and trusting him. That's all a gift. Therefore, you should do this. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, the next verse is really our key verse. I want you to hear it as I read verse two. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be, and here's the word, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Uh, May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of that word. You know, it's kind of funny how someone can say a sentence and it can kind of stick into your mind. Have have you ever had that? Someone says something like, oh, wow, that just stuck in my mind. And years later, you remember it. People who write, um, for example, Mr. McCracken would know this. They would say that those sentences are aphorisms. I feel like an aphorism is something that I've got to get removed from my arm here. You know, it's, it's a weird word, right? But an aphorism is a brief, pithy statement that expresses a truth or sometimes an opinion. And you're familiar with them. You use them. Coaches use them all the time. For example, in the, in the movie Miracle, there's a great aphorism there. 
The coach says this. He says, when you put on that jersey, the name on the front is more important than the name on the back. That's an aphorism. It is a pithy, meaningful, memorable statement. Okay? Um, they use them in a lot of literature. For example, in the movie To Kill a Mockingbird. How many have seen that movie? Let me see. Yeah. How many have read the book? Let me see. How many were supposed to read a book in ninth grade and didn't? Yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah. Listen, I'm going to tell you, I think that is one of the best and most important movies ever made. Um, I, I just read the book recently, and then I went back and rewatched the movie. What a great movie. And Atticus Finch, who is, the, who is the lawyer in that story, played by Gregory Peck, and by the way, when he shoots the wild dog, he's using a 3040 Craig, and that's the gun that I took my first buck with, 3040 Craig. Not that very mo- one, but the same model, right? Atticus Finch is this attorney who's representing this black man. And, and he, he says this aphorism. Listen, he says, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view. Here's the aphorism. Listen, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. That's a great statement. I love how many of you are nodding. Aphorisms make you do that. They make you go like, yeah, true that. It's pithy. It's meaningful. It's memorable. Jesus used aphorisms all the time. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's an aphorism. It's pithy, it's meaningful, it's memorable. When I was at the university, I had a a roommate who spoke an aphorism right into my brain and it stuck there and I have struggled with it for decades because it's not true. It is today's lie. It is a lie that even seasoned Christians can believe. And it's this, people don't change. People can't change. People won't change. Now, those words may seem harmless to you. It's only three words for crying out loud, but I want to suggest to you that they're a very dangerous lie. And I'll explain why in a moment. But first, I want you to ask, why would anyone say this? And why would a 19-year-old college student at a university say people, people can't change? People don't change. And I want to suggest to you that one of the reasons is because my roommate was developing a sort of sense of cynicism about life in general. You know, <laughs> you know what we were talking about when he said it. We were talking about our old girlfriends. That's what we were talking about. So, you know, here's these two guys sitting in a dorm room, you know, yeah, my girlfriend, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And, and out of the blue, he looked at me and said, Steve, people don't change. Why would he say that? probably because of a painful experience that he had had with his girlfriend. Maybe he'd given this girl a second chance and she hadn't changed. And so he bought that lie and he developed that sense of cynicism. He developed uh, something that goes hand in hand with cynicism. And that's just a little bit of bitterness. By the way, sometimes cynics like to think that they're smarter than the rest of us. You know, well, if you knew what I knew, you would be cynical as well. They're not smarter. They're just more jaded than the rest of us. Cynical people are people who have potentially let go of hope. And if you travel that path of cynicism, you will move to a place called bitterness. That is where my my roommate was. And who wants to be there? Who wants to become a bitter person? What 19-year-old male with all the testosterone and everything else that goes with being a 19-year-old guy wants to develop an attitude toward the opposite sex that they can't be trusted because they'll never change? That's not a good place to go. 
But as you believe that lie, it goes hand in hand with that sense of cynicism. Other people might say this because of feelings of futility. I mean, someone might say people can't change, and then the person hearing it would say, ain't that the truth? I've tried to help people change. I've tried to change myself. Doesn't happen. Isn't working. I tried to change. I had this problem in my life, and I worked on it and worked on it, and I couldn't change it. Or I tried to help someone else, and they weren't changing. Now, I want to tell you that pastors and counselors and social workers often find themselves in the change business because we want to help people change their lives for the better. We want to help them make peace with God and have a relationship with him and have meaning and purpose that can only come from knowing God. And so we want to help them, pastors want to help them change their lives. What happens when that does not come to pass? I can tell you what happens for pastors. Either they'll just become miserable You know those guys, right? Or they'll just go through the motions and just present whatever they want to present. Maybe they're downloading Rick Warren, you know, and just preaching his stuff because it's not real for them anymore. Or else they quit. When I entered ministry from my graduating class to the 150 churches that are located at that time in Western Pennsylvania, there were either 16 or 18 men came all at once out of that class into ministry. I counted the other day. Three of us remain out of that many. Now, <laughs> I don't know what, what moved my peers to move on away from ministry. I'm sure there are many reasons that they did, good reasons even at times, but I know as well that for some of them, it was just a feeling of futility. I'm telling people about Jesus. I'm telling them that they can change. I'm telling them that they can have better marriages. I'm telling them they can have a meaningful life and they're not listening. And why am I bothering? I quit. I can go make some money somewhere else. And I quit. And some people buy this lie because of their experience with the futility of trying to help others change. Don't do that. Don't do that. Some people, when they buy into this lie, they find themselves in sort of a domain of despair. You know, follow me logically here, okay? Let me just just say this, see if this makes sense to you. If you feel like things are not as they should be, that things must change, and you feel like people can't change, what? What is there then? I feel like what I'm left with is a sense that things will never be the way they should be, and all I can do is throw up my hands in despair. So it is easy to see how this lie enters our thinking. You do not need a roommate to plant the thought into your mind with a simple aphorism. You just need to have some bad experiences and fail to evaluate them objectively. It's easy to buy this lie. I want you to think about who does this lie hurt? I mean, what if I feel like people won't change? Does it really hurt anybody, Pastor Steve? And I would say, yeah, it hurts people that need second chances. If you believe people can't change, then you're going to be very limited in your ability to help people that need to change. I want you to imagine for a minute that your marriage is in trouble. So you go to a marriage counselor, and you and your wife write the check and give it to him. It's a pretty big check because he's charging good money, right? But you figure that's cheaper than what I'm going to pay an attorney 
if I have to get a divorce. And so you lay the money down. The counselor sits at his desk and he says, so before we begin, I want to tell you up front, I don't believe people can change. People don't change. People can't change. How helpful is he going to be to you and into your marriage? You need to reach across the table and get that check and get out of there right now. Because if you feel like people can't change, then you're not going to be helpful to them in their life at all. People who need second chances need someone, someone else. They need someone who believes they can change. And the lie is harmful to those needing to change it. It hates all of those who need to change, even you personally. And if you feel like change is something that's not going to come about, wow. I really feel like this is one of the reasons that people in our society struggle with all kinds of addiction. From, from alcohol to addictive drugs to gambling to pornography to physical interaction to food to exercise to adventure to all kinds of things. Because they say, I'm just addicted and I can't change. People can't change. That's why over and over again, I've told you about a couple named Jim and Carla, who I see at Mahaffey Camp every year, who I get to speak to on the ordination council, who I get to watch living their lives as he pastors a church, a thriving church in Western Pennsylvania. You know where they met in rehab. Do you know who else they met in rehab? Jesus. And do you know what they finally did? They finally stopped believing the lie that people can't change. And they found through Jesus the ability to change. I love them. They're a blast. If you've been to Men's Link, you've watched Pastor Jim wailing on that guitar. You know, we have a worship team that has just a beautiful sound every week. Theirs is kind of like a grunge band, but they mean it. (laughs) And it's good. It's good stuff. It's a changed life. You see, you can change through Christ. The mom who wastes hours on social media, she can change. And the dad who struggles with illicit images on his phone, he can change. And the teen whose rebellion, whose heart of rebellion is damaging all his relationships, even with his parents, he can change. And the aging woman who has allowed fear to rule her life and dictate her schedule, she can change through Christ you can change. It's possible. Don't believe the lie that says otherwise. I say it's possible because of the text we read earlier. I mean, listen to it once more. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, wholly pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Did you notice the language there? It doesn't say transform your mind. It doesn't say you need to fix this. The language there, the verbiage there is let your mind be transformed. Someone else needs to fix this. You are not the one doing the action. You are the one agreeing that God can do the action. 
and you are allowing him to change who you are and how you think and how you behave. You are asking him, the one who said in Ezekiel, I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You are asking him to take away that which it is in you that believes you can't change and give you what you need to know that through him you can change. It's him. He does that work. Now, if he's going to do that work, you're going to have to, and here's the verb, cooperate. You're going to have to cooperate with him along the way. And as I think of this need for us to cooperate, I think of a a sermon I read recently by a pastor whose last name is, are you ready for this? Hunsucker. How would you like to have that for a name? Who's speaking today? Reverend Hunsucker. Pastor Hunsucker, um, evidently he worked in a profession where he helped people, and he was saying there are several reasons that people don't change, and he listed a bunch of them. I pulled a few of them from his sermon and kind of turned them around and reworked them to say, here are some things that will be required if you're going to cooperate with God so that you can experience the change he wants you to experience and the change that you long for. And the first of them, It's pretty simple. If you're going to change, it will require that you humble yourself. It will require that you admit, I need to change. There's something wrong with me, and it needs to be different than it is right now. Years ago, I was visiting, this is a couple decades ago, I was visiting a young guy in jail, and I'm sitting on the other side of the glass from him, asking him the basic questions, you know? And so I'm saying, uh, so... Are you pleased with the direction of your life? Which seems like a pretty funny question to me. You know, but I just want him to, I want him to, do you see this is not that you're on the wrong side of the glass? Do you see that? You know? Are you pleased with the direction of your life? Do you, do you feel like you need to make any changes? What, what might you do different? What should you be doing different than what you're doing? And his response at that time in my life absolutely flabbergasted me. Here's what he said. Don't tell me how to live my life. (laughs) You're on the wrong side of the glass to be saying that statement, young man. You know, that's what I wanted to say. But it doesn't doesn't flabbergast me anymore. Because the go-to response of the arrogant is don't tell me what to do. And we are all a bit arrogant no matter which side of the glass we are on. You first hear this story, you think, how can someone in jail not know he needs to change his life? But he's not that different from you and me. In fact, by default, none of us want someone to tell us how to live our lives. And by default, all of us need someone to tell us how to live our lives. And if you're going to cooperate with God in seeing the change you need, then you are going to have to humble yourself and you're going to have to say, I need change. You're going to have to drop the arrogance. I think there's five of these. So let's roll through the rest of them. Number two, it will require you find a place to start. When I need change, often I don't know how do I begin. I've been doing this thing ever since I was a kid, and now I need to change it. How do I start this? Kind of like the guy in the book of Acts. He was an Ethiopian guy, and he was reading the Bible, and a guy named Philip heard him reading it, 
And Philip says to him, do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian guy responds with a sense of profound wisdom. He says this, how can I understand this unless someone explains it to me? If you want to change, you're going to have to find a place to start with people who are journeying the same kind of path as you. Because you almost certainly will not change on your own accord. It takes Christ and it takes Christians to help you to change. And so you want to move yourself to a place where God is working, a place where other men, other women are having similar struggles to your own and have a similar resolve that they want to change. You're going to find a place where others are walking the same journey of change. That is how you begin. I want to get over this problem I have. Wow, there's a group of men on Saturday morning that want to get over the same kinds of problems. There's a group of women that are dealing with some of the same issues that meet together on Wednesdays or Thursdays. There's a whole group of people on Sunday mornings that are talking about this thing. I want to get with them. That's how you start. Because some of the most important words you can say whenever you need to learn to do something different than you're doing, two of the most important words you could say is, show me. Show me how. Walk with me on this journey. That second requirement, find a place to start and start. The third requirement, it's a, little, it's a little rough. You're going to have to be willing to pay the price. You're going to have to be willing to pay the price. Muhammad Ali was the greatest boxer that ever lived. If you don't believe that, I am going to punch you. <laughs> he was so mouthy. And I was really good at being mouthy when I was a kid, so I must have been jealous of his mouthiness, so I didn't like him. But boy, he was a fighter. If you ever get a chance to watch a documentary or watch any, any film of that man fighting, he knew what he was doing. Listen to what he said. I hated every minute of training, but I said, don't quit. Suffer now and live the rest of your life like a champion. What a great line, huh? What a great line. He knew this will have a cost. If I am going to be a champion, I'm going to have to work. It's going to be hard, but I am willing to pay the price. If you are going to change, you're going to have to resolve in your mind that you are willing to pay the price. Now, this can be confusing because anyone who knows basic Bible knows that salvation is by grace through faith, that you cannot earn God's love. It's not like you can pay the price so that he'll forgive you. He forgives you freely. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. It's not by works, so no one can boast. So we understand that being forgiven is something that is freely available. But anyone who thinks, even for a moment, knows that when you receive God's love and decide to follow Jesus, there are some things in your life that need to change. They need to change. The rich young man, or rich young ruler, as the King James called him, he knew this. He's talking to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. And he says, I kind of like to follow you. I think, I think you got something I like. I, I like what you got going here. And, and Jesus says to him, well, look, it's going to cost you because you have some things in your life that are going to need to change. And the scripture says, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He wasn't willing to pay the cost of change. 
He's like a lot of people. Because we can become very comfortable with our lives and very lazy and complacent and even happy with our sin. And if, and if you're comfortable with something that needs to change, then the cost becomes a little high for you. And if you love things that need to go, you know the cost will be high for you. And you really have to decide, am I willing to pay the price? Because it will require that you're willing to pay the price. Number four, it will require that you commit to the long haul. It'll require that you commit to the long haul. We want change to come immediately. And frankly, we look for easy answers. Uh, Yeah, I'd like change to come right away. But honestly, change almost always takes time. You know, past generations used to have altar calls sometimes every Sunday in some churches. I like altar calls. I've done altar calls. I've seen God work at altar calls, people coming forward. You've probably noticed that today's generation isn't as in love with altar calls as previous generations were. You don't see them in churches like you used to. You don't even see them at church camp like we used to see them at church camp. And you might say, why? I think there's a number of reasons, but I think one of them is that in the past, we looked for quick solutions to complex problems. Trip to the altar and we'll be done with whatever it is that's bothering us. That was good. That was easy. Yeah, that felt good. But you really don't see that happening frequently in the Bible. In fact, when you say, you know, where do you see someone whose life was radically changed in an instant? People say, well, the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's an example, right? On the road to Damascus, the guy is on his way to persecute Christians. He meets Jesus. He's struck blind and his life is changed immediately. No, it's not. No, it's not. He didn't have a life change. He did have a lane change, but he didn't have a life change because he had to go to Damascus where he sat blind for a little while before a guy named Annas came and and helped him. And then it was three years until we hear from the Apostle Paul again. Three years before he does the first thing for Jesus that's recorded. What's it take that long for? I thought he went to the altar and got that taken care of and he ought to be out there witnessing. How come? Because change takes time. And if we don't believe that, we will really struggle when we don't see change happening the way we want change to happen. And then we'll give up. I've been going to that small group for two years, three years, and I still haven't changed. Don't give up. I've been trying to read the Bible every day since I was a kid, and I've never been able to do it. I'll never read the Bible every day. Don't give up. I've been trying to have a better marriage, but... If you knew who I was married to, I've been trying for so long. Don't give up. Change takes time and you must commit to the long haul. I think that Paul, who had the road to Damascus experience, knew that it takes time because he uses that word transformed and he's speaking to people who are already Christians. Hang in there. Commit to the long haul. When the Apostle Peter speaks about change in our lives, he reminds us by using the word grow. He says, grow in grace and knowledge. You know, Dave Clark has some very old apple trees in his yard. Apple, Dave? Apple trees. And he told me that recently, down at the Civic Center, there was a class offered on how to trim your trees so you can get more fruit. And so he went to the class so he could get more fruit. And uh, he said, I have these apple trees. They're like, I think Abe Lincoln caught, you know, planned them. They're very old and they haven't been trimmed in decades. And uh, what do I need to do? And the expert said to him, 
you got five years. You're going to have to trim them. It'll be five years before you get anything good off of this. And Dave's like, are you kidding? Maybe I'll plant new trees. And the expert said, yeah, four years. <laughs> because change takes time. You understand that? It takes time. And you have to, you have to, you have to commit to the long haul if you're going to see the change that you desire. And number five, it will require that you commit to changing your life. And here's the key word, regardless. Regardless. I've talked to a lot of different people about marital problems that they're having. And often when I speak to them, the man or the woman will say, you know what, I've really messed up. I have not been the spouse I need to be, and I see that, and I'm going to change. I'm going to change so that I can have this marriage back because I don't want to be alone. And they begin to make good changes. I mean, good changes that they're making in their life right along. But the spouse feels like it's too late. And so the spouse says no. Now, does this keep going? Does this change keep happening? For some of them, it doesn't. Because some of them make the commitment to change on the provisio that she'll change (laughs) or he'll change. If I change, then I'll get my marriage back. But I want to tell you, there are some who they begin the change cycle in their life and the spouse says, nah, too late. And she leaves and they keep right on growing and they keep right on changing and they blossom into this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful person and I pity the one who left. Because what change God hath wrought is phenomenal. It's wonderful. And the difference is that that first person committed to change if God did what they wanted God to do. But um, the next person, I skipped a whole point. You guys are so lucky you're going to get out early. The next person The next person committed to God regardless. Let me go back to the earlier point and just give it to you for your notes, okay? It will require that you change your priorities. We have this idea that kind of says, I want God to do what I want and then I'll change. But if we read the scripture, we see that he says, no, 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 the first thing you do is you seek what I want and then those things will be added to you. And so in terms of priority, your first priority needs to be the kingdom of God. I will change for the sake of the kingdom of God, and then I will trust God to do what should be done. I apologize for skipping that point. That trusting in God regardless, committing to change regardless, kind of rests on verses like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding. My own understanding says when I'm really investing into this marriage and it doesn't come through, well, then I'm not going to do anything. But the person who says I'm really investing in this marriage and the person leaves and I'm still going to do it is trusting not in the circumstances and the outcomes. They're trusting in God regardless. And if you want genuine change to happen in your life, you will have to trust in God regardless of the circumstances around you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. So about this lie. (laughs) People can't change. People don't change. People won't change. Is that a lie that's kind of been in your head? (laughs) 
my roommate stuck it right in there. It took deep root in my mind. And all my life, I have worked to fight that with the truth that through Christ, I can live a transformed life. I want to pray that you would fight that lie and that you would grab that same truth. So if you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together and we'll pray. Father in heaven, you are the changeless one. You do not change like shifting shadows. Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. In you, there is no variation and change. That makes sense. Because there's nothing about you that needs to change. But us? Yeah, there's a lot in us that need to change. And so I pray that we would recognize that through you, Jesus we can live transformed lives. I look around this sanctuary and I see men and women whose lives you have changed so radically. We give you glory for that. We give you credit for that. I'm aware, Father, that when that change happens, because it takes time, sometimes it's like seeing yourself in a mirror every day and not noticing your hair has changed to gray or to white. And so sometimes people can be pretty discouraged when they don't really recognize the change that you're making in their life. And sometimes the enemy can speak the lie. You aren't changing, you haven't changed, you won't change, you can't change. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would refute the lies of the enemy. And by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would claim your changing agency. May we never, never stop looking for you to bring the change in our lives that we desire, that you desire. For Christ's sake, amen.